There was a, a family of seven. <laughs> no, they weren't Mormon and they weren't Catholic. They were just seven. And they found a, a perfect house. They'd been looking for some time and found a, a perfect house at the end of a street, a cul-de-sac. It was a nice, quiet neighborhood with friendly neighbors. It was a beautiful view. It was a, a fixer-upper for sure, since it's California after all. And, uh, you know, leaky pipes and galvanized plumbing, mold and mildew, a family of rats living in the walls of the bedroom. The original carpet from 1956, single pane glass windows needing to be replaced. And so they put an offer in on the house and in less than 24 hours, their offer was accepted. And then after escrow, 30 or 45 days, the day escrow closed, they began demo on the garage. Not on the house that lies in ruins that needs to be completely gutted, but on the garage. <laughs> you see, dad had pipe dreams of an ultimate man cave. And he spent months perfecting every single detail. And here it goes. It has a hidden entry door like a speakeasy. You walk in and it's not carpet, it's astroturf. Four recliners face an 85-inch 4K Ultra HD TV where something like Braveheart or Rocky rumbles on the surround sound. There's a heated billiard table next to a collection of Ducatis, pinball, arcade machines, Donkey Kong, Galaga, asteroids. To your left, there's a rock wall that extends three stories high beside a waterfall that pours into a small pond with live piranhas and caimans, you know, like alligators native to South America. Of course, there are darts and a humidor and an arsenal full of weapons, a giant marlin and an elk head mounted to the brick wall. Above the meat smoker, there's a framed picture of the manly trinity, Muhammad Ali, Johnny Cash, and Evil Knievel. It smells of earth and dirt and oil and burning wood like any man should. Meanwhile, the family of seven remains packed like sardines in a studio apartment the size of a motel room, 200 give or take spacious square feet. They await the rebuild of their home. You know, not just the man cave, but the place where real living actually happens. And you may ask them, well, how, how come, you know, dad is spending so much time on the man cave and yet the, the house where real living happens, it lies in ruins. Why? And they might say, well, the, the time has not yet come. But with teenagers and toddlers, 200 spacious square feet feels awfully cozy. You know, it sounds kind of like a first world problem, and maybe it is, but what's more of a problem is that the man cave has a walk-in beer cooler of 400 square feet of thirst-quenching ability, but it's not to be outdone by the wood shop and batting cage and nine-hole mini-golf. But the house, the place where real living actually happens, it lies in ruins, awaiting the rebuild. Well, that, 
That sort of seems off kilter. Seems not quite right. You know, August 29th, 520 BC, it seems a ways away, but it's only 2,541 years and six days away, and it's actually not all that different than today. A new empire has arisen to claim the title of top dog for a short while. That's how it goes with empires. But at least these Persians allowed the people of Judah to return home from their Babylonian captivity to rebuild. A short timeline of where we're at in the Old Testament. David and Goliath, the story of the boy who defeats the giant. Well, he later becomes king after Saul tries to kill him and all that. He becomes king and then Solomon, his son, takes over after King David dies. Well, King Solomon, all of his wisdom and all of his wives, after he dies, the united monarchy of Israel splits into, into a divided monarchy. You've got in the north, the kingdom of Israel, 10 tribes collectively just known as Israel. While in the south, you have the kingdom of Judah, two tribes known as the southern kingdom. Well, in 722 BC, the Assyrians come to power and they destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. And they had this strange policy where they would take conquered peoples and intermix them with other conquered peoples from other conquered places. And what this would do is it would essentially wipe your cultural heritage and distinct history off the map and out of the books of history. They come and they destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. Well, about 135 years later, Babylon comes to be the new top dog in the land. They destroy Assyria. And then in 586, 587, they destroy the southern kingdom of Judah. And they didn't just destroy the southern kingdom of Judah. They burned the temple down. They stole all the gold. And they lined up the king's sons and lined up the king there watching, killed all the sons right in front of him, and then gouged out his eyeballs. So the last thing he saw was the death of his sons. Not people, right? These Babylonians. And then what they did, they took the king and all the other conquered peoples, the remaining remnant, and they took them across the Fertile Crescent into modern-day Iraq. Well, in 539, the kingdom of Babylon was destroyed by the Persians. Cyrus of Persia destroys the Babylonians and allows the people of Judah to return to their homeland to rebuild. And that's where we find ourselves in the book of Haggai. The people are back in their homeland. It's been 20 years or so since they've settled in and the rebuild is going swimmingly. Except for one glaring thing. There's something about the rebuild that's off kilter. It's not quite right. And today we begin a brand new series called The Rebuild. 
a short three-week study on a short book of the Old Testament called Haggai. And to be honest with you, I've never quoted from Haggai. I've never heard a sermon on Haggai. I've never taught or preached on Haggai. I mean, I, I think I've read it, right? Or just like breezed through it. But I'm learning so much from this short book in the Old Testament about what it means to rebuild. Like by calling the people of Judah to rebuild with timber and with stone, God leads the people to rebuild their hearts and lives. And even though August 29th, 520 BC, it seems a ways away, it's actually not all that different from today. And I believe that God is here right now, empowering us, enabling us to rebuild our hearts and lives today. So over the next three weeks, I want us to focus on a simple question. What do I need to rebuild? What do I need to rebuild and how am I going to do it? So if you're able, why don't you turn with me to the book of Haggai. The easiest thing is probably just going to the table of contents. Or, you know, if you're really handy with your Bible, flip to the New Testament. Go to the Gospel of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. And then go back two books, past Malachi and past Zechariah, to Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. And it begins like this. On August 29th, of the second year of the Persian King Darius's reign, so we're looking at 520 BC, the Lord gave a message through the prophet Haggai. He's a prophet, not some fortune teller or a magician, but a true prophet of God is a woman or a man who feels called by God to speak the word of God. It's less foretelling and more forth-telling, speaking truth into a particular society or historical context. Think like less tarot cards and Miss Cleo at 1-800-PSYCHIC for $4.99 a minute, and think more like like social critics or community leaders or teachers. Think of, of prophets as poets or songwriters, historians, even shepherds or outcasts, or those in the king's service. This Haggai is God's instrument that God chooses and uses to speak. And it says, to speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, a political leader, and to Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, a a religious leader. And these two leaders with tongue twisters for names, they play critical roles in the time of the rebuild. And then in verse 2, Haggai speaks. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies says. The people are saying, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house, that is the temple. The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. What? Like really? The time has not yet come. It's been 20 years. 20 years ago, Monster Energy Drink just came out, and we've been drinking brake cleaner ever since. 20 years ago, flip phones had the first camera on, on them. I mean, 20 years ago, think about the difference between then and now. It's been quite a while. It seems like the time is just right. It's way past due, but that's not even half the issue. 
Verse 3 says, Then the Lord sent this message through the prophet Haggai. Why are you living in luxurious houses while my house still lies in ruins? That, that's off kilter. That's not right. It, it's like the way of life doesn't equal the way of worship. And the way of worship doesn't equal the way of life. It's off kilter. Everything is. The people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. But then like, why, why are you living in luxurious houses? This is what the Lord of heaven's armies says. Look at what is happening to you. In other words, take a good hard look at your life. You have planted much, but harvest little. You eat, but are not satisfied. You drink, but are still thirsty. You put on clothes, but cannot keep warm. Your wages disappear as though you were putting them at the 76 for 580 a gallon. Or your wages disappear as though inflation was at like 9.1%. Or your wages disappear as though you were putting them in pockets filled with holes. All your efforts end up empty. There's no true satisfaction, no fulfillment. Contentment is elusive. And finances, whoo, that is a major anxiety. But the people still say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Let's just be real. You know what that means? Me first. Not God first. Me first. It's not the time. Time is an interesting thing. You know, we all have the same number of seconds and minutes and hours in a day. And how we use each second and minute and hour of the day, it says a lot about our priorities, about what is most important to us. The average human spends roughly 79 years on earth, 28,835 days. We spend about 33 years of our lives sleeping. Seven of those trying to get to sleep. We spend roughly 13 years and two months at the daily grind or the dream job, followed up by 11 years and four months of screen time. That means TV and, and social media. We spend a glorious four and a half years eating. On average, we spend 115 days laughing. What's not so funny is that we spend about four months of our lives at stoplights and 43 days on hold. <laughs> Women spend nearly one year deciding what to wear and 1.5 years doing their hair. This all compared to men who spend only 46 days of their lives getting ready. And lastly, five months of our lives we spend complaining. 
probably complaining about how I'm so busy and how it's not the right time or I don't have the time, but we do, right? Like, I mean, you spend 11 years and four months of your life on screen time. And ladies, 1.5 years doing your hair? Like, never thought that you could get back a year and a half of your life simply by wearing a hat. <laughs> but your hair, your hair looks good. It looks great. I mean, it's on point today. It is awesome the way the volume and the shimmer and the shine. Amazing, right? But I think the truth is, like, it is the right time. Right now. Today. We do have the time to prioritize God. Because the truth is, prioritizing God in everything, it changes everything. Prioritizing God in everything changes everything. Relationships, outlook, livelihood, purpose, hope, joy, support, courage. Prioritizing God in everything, it changes everything. I learned something a couple years ago, profound, in high school, uh, two or three years ago. <laughs> and um, it's crazy. They, they put that in the yearbook. Look at that stud. I don't know who wrote that, but um, probably my mom wrote that. Just a little pick-me-up. I learned something profound, though, in high school two or three years ago. It's called time management. It's when you manage your time. And of course, in high school, there's, you guys took that picture away? Come on. <laughs> Just for like a couple, like 30 more seconds. All right. <laughs> but you know, in high school, at least for me, there's, there's like soccer and homework and school and tests and quizzes and friendships and all of these things to juggle. And then on Wednesday night, there's like the disposable things like youth group and uh, church on Sunday. Ah, but there's, you know, I, I can't go to those things, uh, you know, because there's soccer and homework and school and tests and quizzes and friendships and all of these things to juggle. But time management, right? I learned this profound thing in high school. I don't know how I figured it out, but I figured that maybe if God is the author of time, if God is the author of time, then maybe he might be able to multiply my time. And, and maybe if I prioritize God first and foremost, like first thing ever, then maybe I'd have time to do everything else, all the things that needed to get done. And it's crazy. Like this whole time management thing, it really worked. Like sure, it was good, but I, I didn't need like a schedule or a planner or an app on the flip phone with the antenna. I needed God first in everything. And it was almost miraculous how when I put God first, when I went to like youth group, when I went to church on Sunday and I'd read my Bible and I would devote myself to like prayer, just living for God. When I put him first in everything, when I put the author of time, God, first in priority and devotion, in my plans and dreams and aspirations and relationships, it's like the author of time multiplied my time because there's always time for God. And I noticed that everything got done and everything was much more efficient and I was more focused and I could do more and tasks were easier. Everything seemed more manageable because of this crazy time management. 
But Haggai is talking to people like maybe you and maybe like me who are stingy with their time. Me first, not God first, me. It's not the time. And so he continues in verse 7. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies says. Look at what's happening to you. So take a good hard look at your life. Now go up into the hills, bring down timber, and rebuild my house. Then I will take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You hoped for rich harvests, but they were poor. And when you brought your harvest home, I blew it away. (laughs) That's not nice. But God's not nice. He's good. Did you catch that? God's not nice. He's good. You can clap, but that's all right. I mean, I I don't know. We we may not like sometimes the things that God does because it's not nice, but maybe it doesn't mean that it's not good. God is good, and God is good all all the time. But the imagery here, I think, suggests that the human achievements are so fragile and so temporal that that a simple breath from God just blows them all away. Like the harvests that they counted on, they all came to nothing. Why? Because my house lies in ruins, says the Lord of heaven's army, while all of you are busy building your own fine houses. It is because of you that the heavens withhold the dew and the earth produces no crops. I have called for a drought on your fields and hills, a drought to wither the grain and grapes and olive trees and all your other crops, a drought to starve you and your livestock and to ruin everything you have worked so hard to get. Woo! Those are some bold words from from Haggai here. But I think his point is this. Your life and your behavior matters to God. Your behavior matters to God. Even though August 29th, 520 BC seems ways away, it's actually not all that different than today. Your behavior matters to God. What you do and how you live matters to God. And it's almost crazy and and even unbelievable that the God who fashioned the stars and galaxies and quantum mechanics from nothing, the God who causes seasons to change and tides to rise and fall, the God who makes a lion's tongue so rough that it can lick off your skin, the God who enables a Komodo dragon to devour five pounds of meat in less than a minute. That's like 20 double doubles, animal style, of course. The God who created a spectrum of colors and sounds so vast we can't even begin to see or hear or even imagine. The God who took a hundred billion neurons, each one connected to 10,000 other neurons and said, I'm going to take this, the most complex object in the universe, and I'm going to place it on your shoulders and plug it into blood vessels that are about uh, 100,000 miles long. The God who created you, a biological miracle with odds against so astronomical, they're effectively impossible, like gold spontaneously becoming oxygen. The God who created you, one person out of 8 billion people on one planet, out of 9 planets orbiting one star, out of 300 billion stars in one galaxy, out of 2 trillion galaxies, 
everything you are and do matters to God. And he has prioritized you in everything. Now, the whole story about God sent his one and only son to die on the cross for our sins and rise from the grave. He has prioritized you in everything. So naturally, I should prioritize God in everything too. Because who wants to live in a me-first world without satisfaction and fulfillment and contentment and purpose? Who wants to live in a world where you plant much but harvest little, you eat but are not satisfied, you drink but are still thirsty, you put clothes on, can't keep warm, your wages disappear as though you're putting them in pockets filled with holes? It's the doldrums of life. And it's that life that the people of Judah are trudging through in Haggai's day. But check out their response to Haggai's tough love talk in verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of God's people began to obey. They began to obey the message from the Lord their God. I mean, that, that is not, that is not normal. Not something you see when the Old Testament prophets speak. You don't see the obedience. No, 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 no. Usually what they do is they just like, you know, chain them up, throw them in prison, put them in a pit or cut them in, in half, saw them in half to be precise. Well, but no, they obey. When they heard the words of the prophet Haggai, whom the Lord their God had sent, the people feared, honored, revered, respected the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave the people this message from the Lord. I am with you. I am with you you, says the Lord. So the Lord sparked the enthusiasm of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the enthusiasm of Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the enthusiasm of the whole remnant of God's people. They began to work. They begin the rebuild on the house of their God, the Lord of heaven's armies, on September 21st of the second year of King Darius's reign. They begin the rebuild by prioritizing God in everything and seeing it change everything. They realized, I am with you, says the Lord. And this same God of galaxies and quantum mechanics and Komodo dragons is with you today. It's not just that what you do and how you live, it matters to God. It matters so much that I am with you, says the Lord. And like, this is so good. It should be the memory verse for our, our sermon series. Haggai 1.13. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave the people this message from the Lord. I am with you, says the Lord. And knowing this, like memorizing this, even, even just those few words, I am with you, says the Lord, knowing this, memorizing it, taking a good hard look at my life with this, it sure makes most of my problems feel sort of hangnail-ish. Like maybe I don't need to spend five months of my life complaining about them, but I'll tell you what, it makes each and every one of my problems, each and every single one of my problems, both big and small, manageable and overcomable. 
All because I am with you, says the Lord. But I think the question for us then is, well, okay, God, you are, are with us, but are, are we with you? And in everything that we might need to rebuild, how are we being with you, Lord? How are we prioritizing God first and foremost? You know, if I, I've got on average 79 years on earth, how do, how do I prioritize God with my time? Okay, well, maybe like I can pray each night, giving thanks before embarking on 33 years of sleep. Or maybe for 13 years and two months of being on the job, I can show the love of God in my words and in my actions. 11 years and four months of screen time can probably be chopped in half and soaked in integrity and care. The glorious four and a half years of grubbing down can be celebrated with gratefulness. And that's one of those things that I, I often have like these super deep conversations with Zeke, my four-year-old at the table, as he's refusing to eat oatmeal this morning. I'm like, bro, this oatmeal does not get any better. It's like sugary. It's got brown sugar. It's got maple. It's got apples. It's got cinnamon. It does not get better than this. I know it doesn't have dinosaur eggs, but come on, <laughs> cut me some slack. And I tell him, you know, and like, my parents told me, like a lot of people probably were told, well, you better eat that because there's starving kids somewhere else in the world, right, who, who don't have that. It's like, well, f what good is it me eating this for them, you know? But the reality, I just tell them, like, you know, there's, there's kids who don't have food in places of our world. He's like, why? I'm like, I don't know. Uh, I could get into, like, the politics and the governmental system and all the economy of everything, but I'm just like, I don't know. But we're blessed and we have this food, and I think that's every time we eat and drink, don't just, don't just gulp the coffee down, taste the coffee. Don't just wolf the food down, taste the food, and enjoy it, giving thanks. 115 days of laughing? Come on, it needs to double or triple. We take ourselves way too seriously. I think we take ourselves too seriously, and we don't take God seriously enough. My God is, is full of humor. And I think we can learn to enjoy God and enjoy life more, even despite or even in the face of trials. Even with four months at red lights and 43 days on hold, seems impossible. But I can learn to worship and pray and learn patience and pause. I think that's a word that we really struggle with in Southern California today. Pause. Some of you guys are getting antsy right now as we're just like having a 10 seconds of silence. Pause. It's okay to be bored because out of boredom comes creativity. <laughs> and it, it may be weird to say, but maybe I don't know, maybe it's the Holy Spirit, but you know, maybe instead of taking the phone to the bathroom, which is super unsanitary and disgusting, but we all do it, right? <laughs> take the Bible or take nothing. There's a shampoo bottle. You can read it. You can be bored. You can be creative. You can pray, whatever. Ladies, maybe you want that year back deciding what to wear. 
in five, 1.5 years getting that hair on point. It already looks great. But men, <clears throat> 46 days getting ready, this is the moment. This is the moment when we suit up in the full armor of God. And lastly, five months of our lives we spend complaining. Let's turn that complaint into praise. You see, we rebuild every single aspect of our lives by prioritizing God in everything. And in doing so, it changes everything. It was a man cave, but not, not the type of man cave with four recliners facing an 85-inch 4K Ultra HD TV. No heated billiard tables next to a collection of Ducatis. No framed picture of Muhammad Ali. He was just a man in a cave, just a man in a cave, and he was in the fight of his life. He had slain the giant Goliath some years before. He had become a, a great warrior and a leader of the people, but the king Saul had a hit out on his head. And in the fight of his life, hiding out in a cave, David jots down this praise, putting God before everything. Have mercy on me, O God, have mercy. I look to you for protection. I will hide beneath the shadow of your wings until the danger passes by. I cry out to God most high, to God who will fulfill his purpose for me. He will send help from heaven to rescue me, disgracing those who hound me. My God will send forth his unfailing love and faithfulness. I am surrounded by fierce lions who greedily devour human prey, whose teeth pierce like spears and arrows, and whose tongues, told you, cut like swords. Be exalted, O God, above all the highest heavens. Make your glory shine over all the earth. My enemies have set a trap for me. I am weary from distress. They have dug a deep pit in my path, but they themselves have fallen into it. My heart is confident in you, O oh God. My heart is confident. No wonder I can sing your praises. Wake up my heart. Wake up, O oh lyre and harp. I will wake the dawn with my song. That means I'm putting first things first. I will wake the dawn with my song. I will thank you, Lord, among all the people. I will sing your praises among the nations for your unfailing love is as high as the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above all the highest heavens. May your glory shine over all the earth. And so God, I ask and I pray that you would shine your glory in our hearts. Would you be exalted in our lives as we put you first, as we learn to prioritize you over everything? Everything begins and ends with you. You are the Alpha. You are the Omega. You are the beginning and the end. And sometimes we're so distracted and so apathetic and so tired and worn out or depressed or, or, or just we've we're at our end, but God, you are the hope of everything and you're calling us to be rebuilt 
And as you rebuild our lives and the the lives of people beside us, help us to commit to following you, to become passionate world changers for Jesus. The God who, who you gave everything for us, Lord. And if someone here today wants to experience that, wants to learn to prioritize God first, that they would open up their hearts and say, Jesus, I want you to come into my life. I want you to be number one in my life because you were number one, or I have been number one in your life. You died on the cross for my sin, for my shame, for my guilt, for my wrongdoing. You defeated death though, as you rose from the grave. Come into my life, Holy Spirit, and guide me. We love you, Lord. So rebuild us. Our hearts are open. We're ready to receive from you. Help us to do the work. In Jesus' name, amen.